Welcome back to the Discovering Commercial Real Estate Podcast. We have the man himself, Abe Batesh, here with us today. Abe, how's it going? It's going great. Thanks for having me. Of course, of course. Um, so let's get straight into it. Um, my first question to you, Abe, is how did Abe Batesh become Abe Batesh? Tell us your origin story. Wow. Uh, I don't know how far we want to go back, but uh, I, I was born in Bradley Beach, New Jersey. I went to... Uh, I uh, grew up uh, in a poor home, but a loving home. I had the privilege of uh, inheriting uh, my parents' work ethic. They worked together very hard uh, in a retail store. Uh, they put me in. Uh, they put me in school, and I was uh, struggling my whole life in school. I wasn't really uh, made out to be a good student, but I think the values and the work ethic that they taught me, watching them, I worked with them in their store. My parents worked together in a retail store in Queens mm. and I worked there and I uh, I uh, think I had some ambition even though I wasn't doing great in school and uh, in high school I was I knew I wasn't going to college uh, a lot of my friends were going to college I had a good time in high school I, I think my whole my whole goal to in school was just to have a good time mm. and around uh, junior senior year I realized that uh, the party's over mm wasn't going to college and uh, I decided to go uh, take a salesperson's license I think in uh, the beginning of senior year mm. went to Brooklyn College I think I was 16 or 17 years old I don't even know if you're allowed to do that anymore and uh, th that's really where my connection to real estate began and so what do you think you'd be doing career-wise today if you never got into real estate at the age of 16 17 18 Wow uh, I mean, my whole life has been in real estate, but uh, I mean, I know as a young kid, I wanted to be an actor. Uh -huh. And uh, many times in the first decade of my career, I said, you know, whatever I have, let me sell. And I don't know, maybe I, I saw that movie. Uh, uh, I saw that movie when he was a sports agent. I always wanted to be a sports agent. Uh -huh. I think if I could go back in time, I think that would be my second career, okay. a sports agent. Right? Maybe it was show me the money, show me the money, got me all excited. I loved it. Right, right, 100%. And what, what would you say... Um, it's kind of like your secret sauce that makes you so successful in the real estate business. Is it your sales skills, your attention to detail? So I, I think if you want to call it a secret sauce, you have to also call it uh, a curse. Mm. Because uh, my attention to detail is definitely there. It's also a combination of OCD, attention to detail. It's a blessing and a curse at the same time. I think mm. anybody in my end, my business and anything detail oriented as far as development, real estate, so forth, so on. I think your attention to detail is the key. Mm. Uh, and sometimes could be a haunting feature to carry along with you. But mm. it's certainly a blessing and a curse at the same time. Uh, when it comes to the New York City real estate business, what do you think excites you most about it? I think uh, I'm doing this for about 37 years. And I, I, I think that the more complex the issues I think the more create creative a deal is, um, it, it definitely, as you're in it longer and longer, it, it becomes less and less exciting. You have to find different ways for it to excite you. When I was 21 years old and I owned the building, I used to love driving by the building and I felt a certain attachment. Now there's so much going on and there's so many deals going on. You do lo lose that, call it, uh, that called it Allure love for and the... excitement mm. that you had. And it just becomes, sometimes I, I think the challenge is, is that it doesn't just become a number on a paper and another deal. I think you have to, you know, we try to throw some fun things into our developments mm. as we go along. Anything to excite us. Okay. Very interesting. Okay. Um, and 
When you were a broker, can you tell us if you remember your first ever deal that you closed? Of course I do. I remember the address. Uh, I have the commission check <laughs> in my office because that deal uh, could have made or break me. I was uh, I started off in an office. When I was in Brooklyn College, there were different real estate brokers that were coming to pitch. Mm. Of course, as a young as a young 17-year-old, I thought I was special that they were going to hire me. I, obviously, we know now that it's commission-based only, and mm -hmm. they'll hire anybody. Yeah. So I went to work in an office on uh, 32 Court Street, I think in 1987 or 1988, and I was working there for about six, seven, eight months, canvassing, doing everything the broker told me to do. A couple of deals fell through. It was mm. very discouraging. I, uh, I even remember I felt so bad I wasn't making any money. I remember at night I would go to this Forget, I'm going back on, I'd go home, then like at 10, 11 o'clock, I'd go to Times Square where they had a telemarketing. And I'd be like with a thousand people trying to sell wow. things to the people on the West Coast. Wow. And uh, it was getting, it was getting to the point of no return. And there was a deal at 55 West 180th Street. I'll never forget the address. It was an apartment building. And uh, the deal was about to happen, and then it broke up. And I really didn't think I was going to last. Mm. And all of a sudden, in the middle of the day, uh, the broker said that the deal's back together and we're running to a contract. In mm. those days, there was no email. So when you want to sign a contract, you go to an office building, the lawyers sit down, everyone sit down, sits down, and you negotiate the contract. And I remember that day like it was yesterday. It was mm. probably the greatest day of my life, career-wise. Um, and uh, that's how it all started. Let's say there's a young broker out there right now watching this. Um, who gets very excited about deals, how would you say um, they can manage expectations and kind of not get their hopes up for a deal, you know, whether it may not even be close? I, I think they have to have confidence in themselves. Mm. I think they have to realize that everyone has a story that they almost gave up. Mm. I think you got to get through that first deal one way or the other. I don't care if it's a year, two years, three years. If you have confidence in yourself, hang in there. You'll find out that the first deal is the hardest deal. If I remember that address... 36 years later, um, it's something worth fighting for. Right. Get that first deal in, and then you could quit after that if you don't like it. But don't quit because you didn't make that first deal. And you did a lot of deals on uh, 100th Street and uh, East, Har East Harlem. Can you tell us, please, why you think you excelled in these types of areas? So when I, when I, when I was a salesperson under the broker, I fell into a group of investors that were all part of the same, call it, uh, a family of apartment building buyers. Mm. I think they were all related. Um, one of them was Howard Pons. If you ever hear of Houlihan Pons, he was a client of mine and he had a couple of other of his friends and they literally touched buildings in the Bronx and Harlem two, three times in their lifetime. And I just happened to have been servicing them at the time. And uh, at those days, it was more about finding the product. In those days, the product was two and three times the rent roll. If you found something at three times the rent roll, you'd call these groups up. You'd, you'd get them all excited. They'd start competing with each other, and you would most probably walk away with a deal. Mm, okay, interesting. They, 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 taught me, they taught me a lot about real estate. There were no banks back then, so every deal was purchase money mortgages. Mm. And they would buy the deal with, uh, let's say, 75000 cash or 100000 cash, and they would put it back on the market a day after they signed the contract for less cash, but a lot more purchase points. Mm. And uh, I really learned the creative way to buy real estate from the group of those investors. You were making all these calls, um, canvassing properties. 
what was kind of what were you saying to people as a young agent to kind of set yourself apart? I ju- I think I just was I just had that ambition and hunger to keep going, keep making the calls. Um, one thing that I remember that I learned from that experience was I was in an office with people a lot older than me, and they were all sitting at their desk, but they had a lot of distractions. I remember one was having marital issues. I was right there. I mean, the cubicles were literally two feet from each other. Everyone was like in one room. And I realized back then that when you go to work, you need to go to work. Mm. You need to try to separate your, your what's going on with you at home. And when you, you get in that office or you get in your car to go to the office, mm. focus on work. And then obviously it's nice to focus on your on your family life when you get home and balance it that way. Many people in that office had other things going on. And the fact that they weren't making a weekly salary, I think, brought more pressure on them. Um, and I think, uh, I think I just had nothing in my life, but I just wanted to make deals. Any successful person will tell you that there was a bit of obsession that went along with their personality at the time you're building a company or setting yourself up. You need to be obsessed. You need to be neurotic. Mm. You, you need to have all of these traits in order to come out on top. And do you think these traits can be learned or are they hereditary? I think they could be learned. I think if somebody has ambition, and I think if somebody's serious mm. about spending time on their career and maybe uh, sacrificing a little bit for their career, I think they can learn everything else after that. Amazing. Okay, great. And you got a letter from Trump back in 1988 saying that he's keeping an eye on you. Um, how did this come about and how do you think this affected you moving forward? Well, first thing that happened was is I think uh, maybe a year or two into my brokerage career, uh, the New York Times reached out to me and they uh, they wanted to know when I took the salesperson's license and how did I get it done so soon and uh, and how I was making deals at such a mm. young age. And they then realized that I might have been the youngest salesperson in the history of New York City at the time. And that's how the article started. And when I spent time with the uh, the editor of the Times, mm. he asked me, what books, uh, what books do I read and how do I get motivated to do what I do? At the time, I think I read The Art of the Deal by right. Donald Trump. So... He named the article Trump Admirer, so forth and so on. What do you think uh, was your biggest takeaway from that book that kind of you hold as a principle to this day? I, I think that reading that book um, gave me the inspiration to kind of jump up a couple of steps in your thinking, mm. uh, uh, as well as a lot of the things that a lot of things that Donald Trump did at a very young age was he used. He used the, the political system to basically reinvest in, in New York, got a lot of tax abatements, mm. which every developer right now is wor- is working on tax abatements in the form of a 421A and so forth. And I just think that he uh, he creatively um, built up, you know, built up his empire with bank financing and uh, political uh, tax breaks. I think that just it was just a it was just a basic creative uh, aspect to uh, putting together a real estate deal. What's the most challenging deal that you ever had to work on? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. I mean, they, they, they seem like they're all challenging, especially these days in the current environment. But I would tell you that um, there was a deal on 4th Avenue, which I basically found a large lot that I was going to make a residential condominium development. And I had a few associates that we were going to do it together. Mm. And again, it was just word of mouth, you know, we're partners, we're partners, and the entire real estate market collapsed. I don't exactly know when this was, 
But literally overnight, everything changed. Surely, by surely, the partners backed out of the deal. I had a very large deposit down and I had no place to go, no bank, no partner, uh, a lot of money. I don't think I could have afforded to lose that deposit. And I just said to myself, what else could be at this site? Found out that uh, the school system, school construction authority was looking in that neighborhood. It was a present church and it was a joint venture with the church. Uh, the pastor and I were working the deal out together and we both agreed that instead of developing condos, let's just sell it to school construction authority. They would, they would keep the back portion of the property mm. for their church mm. and everything else would be a school. And after that miraculous change of plans, uh, it didn't stop. It created more challenges because while we were excavating, we found out that in like the 1800s, it was a burial plot. Oh, wow. So I'm literally at my desk and I'm getting calls from Channel 4, Channel 2. What are you going to do about the bodies, the crypts? Oh, no. <laughs> like, what's a crypt? And uh, thank God the, the church worked it out respectfully. We got through that deal. School Construction Authority didn't want to have anything to do with it. We worked it out. We got through and we closed. And it's a thriving uh, educational facility, you know, at this, at the, you know, right now at this point. So the deal worked out. A lot of, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of joy in real estate is, is that you're creating uh, benefits to a community that I always say, let's respect this building because this building is going to outlive all of us put together. And I think that's really the, the understanding of development is that you're building something that's going to be there a lot longer than you. Got it. Got it. Okay. And, and it sounds like you have a lot of uh, crazy stories. Are we ever going to see a book written by A.B. Batesh? I don't think the book is going to be about how to succeed in real estate. I think the book is going to be uh, uh, a comedy because I'm not the only one, but we have so many crazy wild stories that go on day in and day out. I mean, it's the things that people couldn't even comprehend. I'll tell you a funny story. My, my, so I, I was going out with my wife. I think I was 22 years old. And again, I, I, I wasn't, I wasn't established. I just had desire and heart and ambition. And uh, my father-in-law, may he rest in peace, he sat me down, a very serious man, and he's asking me questions. And I know that what he really wants to know is, am I going to be able to take care of his daughter? Right. I mean, every father wants to know. Rightfully so. Yeah. Their daughter's going to be taken care of. So uh, I'm sitting there, and he's asking me questions, and we start talking real estate. And he starts to tell me about this building on Church Avenue where he owns with this prestigious family and he's a silent investor, and he's explaining it to me, and there's a gym, and he's telling me, uh, basically he's defining the building, and I'm starting to realize that a bank took over a building in foreclosure, and it's just very similar. So now I'm asking him questions. Does, does right. this building have this? Is there a closed store here? Yeah, and I'm realizing it's exactly the same building, but now I have to basically tell him that he doesn't own that building mm -hmm. anymore. So I, I finally had to break the ice and tell him that I think he lost the building wow. in foreclosure. <laughs> Bank is marketing it, and his his uh, investor who brought him into the deal does not own it anymore. Wow! And uh, I, I heard that he went down to his his file cabinet in the basement and spent like two days there, you know, in disbelief. So oh my god! <laughs> I kind of burst his bubble a little bit, and it's a it's a family story that we tell. You know, it, it's going to be a story that. Goes on for generations. Generations, got but, it. Uh, got it. Okay, great. Um, 
And what, what do you think is the secret to effective negotiation? It's simple. If you're negotiating to beat the person, embarrass the person on the other end, always feel you have to come out ahead, that might work for a deal or two. But that's not gonna, that's not gonna reap uh, extended benefits. Mm. That's not gonna create long-lasting relationships. I've, done, I've made more money on secondary deals with a seller or a tenant that I was on opposite ends mm. than I have of call it a first-time relationship. I think everyone needs to realize when they're sitting across from a person that that deal is gonna happen. Find out what the person wants. Try to give them what they want in a way where you still prosper, but care about the person. Mm. Let them care about you. I've been involved in, when I've been in contract on certain properties, markets change, cycles change. They change overnight. And I've gone to sellers many times and extended closing dates that were time of the essence. Time of the essence means they could keep your deposit and they could sell it to somebody else. And I think the fact that I'm, I care, I try very much to genuinely care. I genuinely care for every person that I deal mm -hmm. with. And it comes across that they genuinely care as well. And again, remember I said prior, try to deal with nice people because you never know when you're going to need them. So I think when you're negotiating, it's not about killing and beating the person mm -hmm. and coming out and telling your friends you beat the crap out of him. No, no, no. It's about understanding what that person wants. Take a piece of paper out, ask him what he wants to fulfill in the transaction. Got it. Try to work it out and you'll both be happy. And that bond of buyer-seller or landlord-tenant will, will outlast that particular transaction. And you could do multiple deals from the relationship. Real estate is relationships. Mm -hmm. It's not, it's location, location, location. It's really location, relationship, relationship, relationship. Got it. So it's important to kind of uh, take that short-term focus and throw it out the window and kind of focus on the long-term and building that relationship for a lifetime. You want to lifetime. beat the guy up? You want to embarrass him? Find out what happens when you embarrass another person. Mm -hmm. You're not creating a friend. You're not creating someone who's rooting for you. You're yeah. not creating anything that's going to outlast that one deal. Real estate is relationship-driven. And how do you think brokerage prepares somebody to be a successful real estate entrepreneur? So I think that it's, I think it's every real estate focused-minded person should start off as a salesperson mm. and a broker. Like anything else, real estate is a product. Mm. And if you don't know your product, you're not going to be successful. Mm. So the same way a uh, person that makes this table has to understand how wide, how thick, what material, where to import the material. It's the same way real estate. You have to understand your neighborhoods. You have to understand the zoning. If you're going to reach out to an investor and you're going to pitch him on buying a property, he doesn't care that you're doing that because you want to make a commission. Right. He only cares about what that property is going to do to his portfolio right. and whether or not it's going to help him. So you have to know the product mm. in order to understand how to help him and how to help his, his goals and his ambitions. Mm. So what better way to know a product than to actually understand how to sell it? And so you seem very passionate about brokerage in this, in this whole business. Why did you decide to make a transition out of brokerage? Well, that was, that's, that's a very easy question to answer. So, Johnny, I would, I would make deals. I would sometimes have two, three contracts signing in a month. Uh -huh. And it would be the same thing on every deal. I would pitch these, these uh, investors to buy the property. And, uh, and maybe the commission was $12,000. And I think I got half. So I would go to the closing and I would figure my commission was 6,000. But little did I know, they take me to the side, 
They start arguing over the oil in the tank. Uh -huh. They took me, they beat me up on the side, and I walked out with less commission. Uh -huh. And after a while, you realize, I think I'd like to be on the other side of the table. Got it. So I watched what they did. I observed what they did. And I realized it's not a big deal. Mm. And they were flipping properties. They weren't even closing on them. They would literally, I would buy properties. I would finesse it in a setup mm. right after the contract sign, put it back in the New York Times, and sell it two, three weeks later. And then when I went to a closing, it was me, it was my new buyer, and it was the seller. Mm. And I didn't even have to close. So again, it's a lot better to make 50000 or or 100000 than walk away, you know, and get it beaten up. You know, at one, at one point, at one point, I, I would I would try to stay in the bathroom most of the closing so they wouldn't beat me up, but they usually beat you up anyway. Which, by the way, is a lesson learned. Bro, you should not beat up brokers. You should be happy for that. Hundred percent, be grateful for that for sure. Um, and um, let's say somebody right now is a broker watching this, who's five to ten years in their business, and they want to make the transition like you did. How would you recommend for them to go about this? I think that in the five or ten years that they're brokering, they have relationships. They have people that have made money off of them, and I think that. Again, one of the smartest business advice I can give uh, on this podcast is to surround yourself with good people. Uh, if you're going to sell, if you're going to sell and broker real estate to investors, try to find an investment group that actually cares about you, mm. because of that relationship, they can be your partner when you find the next deal. In real estate, it's not about the client; it's mm. about the product. It's always going to be whoever has the product is really. The, the priority person in the transaction. Got it. So if you have a great product and you have clients that you trust and you've built up a relationship with, why not go to them and say, I want to be part of this deal. Mm. Help me be part of this deal and we'll do a lot more deals together. That will work 99% of the time if you're following and you're working and you're engrossed with quality type of investors. And uh, you mentioned earlier that you bought your first building at 21. Uh, maybe even younger. Can you tell us about um, the first deal that you ever transacted on and how did you put it together? I will. I will. I, 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 I had a 14 building package that it was a complicated uh, deal in uh, Crown Heights section of Brooklyn. I thought I was going to put the deal together, resell it. The market crashed at that time. It was the first time that I had to close, actually close on properties, meaning own them. Uh, I knew nothing about management. I think the first day I owned it, somebody called me that worked in one of the buildings and said, uh, said, Abby, we need coal. I said, okay, great. So go to the store, give mm -hmm. me the bill. Mm -hmm. No, no, we need coal. <laughs> I literally didn't know how a building was heated. I had no idea how a building produced electricity. Mm. I had no idea what a water main was. I had no idea what anything was. All I knew was numbers at that point. And that, that 14 building package taught me how to manage real estate. Mm. So in reality, it was a tough deal, but it was probably the most important deal because it allowed me to understand management. Would you say that um, the most difficult parts of your career, the times where you had to think outside of the box to put deals together were kind of the most progressive times in your career where you kind of learned and developed yourself as an individual? The hardest part of my career was early on. Mm. It was early on when I was trying to just make my first deal and I was very depressed that mm. it didn't happen. Um, those feelings never, you never forget those feelings because you literally feel like you're in the middle of no man's land. Mm. And then when I took over this 14 building package, the neighborhood went to hell. Mm. There were Korean vegetable stores. There were Israeli discount stores. 
there were real stores and real mercantile merchants. But in that point in the late 80s and early 90s, it was the tremendous amount of uh, drugs came into these neighborhoods. So I found myself walking the streets of these Crown Heights buildings in a very dangerous manner. I literally lived at home and my mother said goodbye to me and little did she know I had two bodyguards. Oh wow. Literally had to be with me in order for me to collect any of the rent. Oh wow. No question, that was the hardest part of my career. I didn't know if, I really didn't know if I was gonna make it. It was a tough time, tough neighborhoods, um, but thank God, God's help I survived. And as far as your like investment philosophy, like the way you approach investing, how do you think that changed over time since when you were younger? You know, I, I think it's always been the same. I, I, I worry very much about the upside. If something makes sense, if the downside is covered, then I just work my butt off to make the most money I can. Mm. I think it's a risk-reward type of a relationship. I, I want to cover my downside. Once you cover your downside, you can work hard on creating magic. The market goes up, great. But I, I try to not be one deal away from oblivion. And let's say somebody watching this is um, 18, 19, 20, and they want to get into the business of raising capital. Um, how would you recommend for them to do that with no track record? That's a, gr that's a great question. That, that, Johnny, that's the toughest question you gave me today because if an 18-year-old came over to me and asked for capital, right. I would look at the deal and I would see that it made sense. But there's nothing like a person that has skin in the game. When they have skin in the game and they're coming to you to partner up or to do a JV, it's a different story. If they're just coming and they're pitching, you have to, you have, to have your eyes wide open. Mm -hmm. um, but it doesn't mean that they shouldn't pitch. And it doesn't mean that they shouldn't. I think uh, they should embrace the deal and ask, can we look at this together? Can we analyze it together? They're going to come and they're going to explain to me why it's a great deal when they have no track record and they have no history right. and they have no scars in their career. It's going to be pretty hard to pay attention. But there's a, there's a way to, they could approach it in a, call it a more uh, refined manner. I would say they should come to you and say, listen, I have an interesting deal. Mm. Might be for you. I'm not an expert, but you are. Let's go over it together. And I would approach it that way. The 18 year olds that uh, think they know everything, the ones that you got to be careful from. I've never brought an investor in any of my deals where I didn't have a lot of skin in the game. Um, and I think that's very important for people who are trying to syndicate, trying to bring in outside investors. You got to show them, the best way to show them that you like the deal is to show them that you're part of the deal. And can you tell us about your company? My company is called the Co Organization. We have different aspects of it. We have a construction division. We have a management investment division. We have a consulting division. We manage all of our own real estate. Uh, we do all of our own construction. We do all of our own development. Uh, we, we have a legal department where mm. uh, we know how to handle the legal aspect of the transactions as well as the leasing and so forth. As far as where I want to be in 10 years, if I told you that I want to slow down, it would be true, but I don't know if it would be actual reality. Okay. I've been saying this. I said this when I was 40. I'm now 54 years old. Right. I don't know if there's any slowing down in this business. I think it's a, it's a type of business where it's hard to... Lifelong journey? It's a lifelong journey. That's yeah, true. Uh, what do you look for for a new hire for your company? I think that I like to, to hire people who believe in themselves, excited about what they want to do. And I, I think when someone comes into the door and says they want to work at the Abeco organization, I think it's important... When you interview them, when you meet them, I think you need to ask yourself, 
can you see that person here in five or 10 years? Mm. If they're just kind of flowing through their career, then it's, it's not going to work. Mm. They have to be, they have to want to see themselves in the company in five years or in 10 years. Uh, and I think then it's a, it's a, it's kind of a working formula for it, for it to work. And they definitely have to have confidence in themselves and be willing to learn. And they definitely got to be willing to handle constructive criticism because if I'm surrounding around people, I want them to be better, mm. to learn better. I always tell them, you have more in you. Let's get it out. How did you kind of learn the skills associated with being a leader? Is this something you were kind of born with or did you develop this as you went through your career? I think it's something I developed as, mm. as I went through my career. When you're surrounded by people that rely on you, um, they need to see that you're in the trenches with them. Mm. I think if you ask me, what leadership, what leadership a leader needs in order for other people to follow. I, I don't think it's the door closed. Um, and I don't think it's them three, four, five steps higher than everybody else. Mm. The thing about me is, because I'm involved in every aspect of the company, from the accounting to the checklists of my developments. You know, I go into a project that's almost done and I have a doorstopper meeting and they're like blown away. I don't understand. A.B. Batesh is here and I'm telling them how I like my doorstops. And I'm telling them that when you put the toilet paper holder, uh -huh. you don't put it behind the person because no one wants to bend their elbow back right. to use the toilet paper. It should be comfortable. Everything should be perfect. Don't put the door stoppers where the door opens up less than 90 degrees. And I think this attention to detail, they see me in the trenches. Got it. I think you gain respect by being a leader that's in the trenches. If you're in the trenches, they'll follow you right in there. If you don't jump in there, if you don't lead the group in there, I don't think you're going to gain their respect. Mm. You don't gain their respect, and I don't think they're going to follow you mm. in the correct way. Got it. Okay. So you think uh, as a leader, it's, it's important to kind of put your ego aside and remember that you're on the same team as everyone that you're hired? And... Without a doubt. Got it. Without a doubt. I think everybody needs to know that you're there. You want them to succeed. Got you want it. them to grow. I tell people all the time. I said, you don't have to stay here. My, you know, it, it would make me very happy to hear that your career goes up the ladder. And if that's because you spent a few years at the Abe co uh, company, then that's great. I'm proud of you. Mm. I'm here for you. I'm not, uh, I'm not here to use and abuse. I'm here to make you reach higher goals for yourself. And Abe, you mentioned earlier that uh, it's important to kind of separate work and life and kind of when you're at work, do work. How do you maintain a work-life balance when you have so much going on during the week? So, so I, I, I said it's important, but I didn't say I'm, I'm not successful in it. So I built my company by working Extending the day. Okay. I I used to and still do have a have a time period, let's say between five and six, where I kind of relax and then I go back to work. I, I used to go play with my kids and then I used to go right back to the office. If I had a basketball league, I'd go play basketball, run back to the office. I literally more times than not have spent eleven PM, twelve AM, one o'clock in the morning. And I, that used to be my hours. Mm. I, I, I believe I built my business between 7 p.m. and 11 p.m. And I'm not saying it's healthy. I'm not saying everybody has to do it. But it's a very tough balance um, when you're at that stage in your career. I, I don't think it's, a, it's the greatest thing as far as that type of work hours. But I'm just telling you, that's a very big challenge in how you want to balance mm. yourself. I don't think you could build a business and a company by 9 to 5. Got it. I don't think that happens. Got it. If people do it. I give them all the credit. I wasn't able to do it nine to five. So you really have to put that time, that extra credit, you know, that time outside of work in order to move forward and push forward. Without a doubt. Got it. Without okay. 
I think it's I think it's a lot harder with the, in the social media world that we're in for young career-minded women and men mm. to have that obsession with their career when there's so much distractions. I think that you need if you want to be obsessed about building a company, you need to put your phone down, you need to grind it out, you need to spend the time and the energy away from the nonsensical things in your life in order to get there. Because I could tell you there are people who are putting their phone down. They're going to get to that finish line right. way before you. And as far as goal setting, this whole process of goal setting, how do you go about this for yourself and for your company? Again, I'm in a boxing match every day with my alter ego. I don't want to relax. I want to keep on doing. When something works out, there's always another problem that, you know, there's no time to celebrate. There's always another deal. There's always another challenge. I'm a developer. No developer will tell you that they sleep great at night. They sign completion guarantees. They personally guarantee. There's no relaxing. You have to just stay in the fight, keep going. You know, I, I look at my day not as a work day. I look at my day like I came back from a, a battle. Mm. And every day when I hit the pillow, it's a battle that I got through. Mm. And that's basically the approach you have to have. And I don't want to scare people from not being a developer because, again, it's rewarding. It's a way to add equity onto existing buildings. Right. But you have to focus and you have to realize you're not going to be, you know, you know if, you, if you want to sleep nine, 10 hours a day, I don't think real estate development Not is the real. business. Got it. Absolutely. Got Absolutely. it. Okay. And I know your father had a, a, a dry goods business in Queens. Um, how would you say your kind of family and your upbringing kind of influenced your life and your career? Without a doubt. I, I always tell people that I inherited something much more valuable than an inheritance in the form of money or buildings. I inherited my parents' hard work ethic. Mm. I saw my father go every single day. There was no sick days. He was literally six, seven days a week. Wow. Had to open up the store, ran the store. He bought the merchandise. He cut the boxes. He's made the sales. He paid the bills. I'm not saying he was a one-man show, but he was basically a one-man show. And I think as a young, I think it's... I think at the age of 12 to 17, I don't, I don't think this age group understands how much that they're picking up from their siblings and from their parents. You don't realize that you're learning from your parents until, until much later in life. Right. But my hard work and my drive and the ability to work long hours and the ability to, to keep extending and keep driving myself, there's no question it came from my parents. Wow. And I could tell you that growing up with a lot of wealthy kids that didn't have this in their life, money goes and money comes. I think if you have your work ethic and you have the drive, you have the determination, that's something that stays with you forever. So that's what my parents gave me. They didn't give me any money. They were very poor. I think that's what drove me. I mean, uh, one of the reasons why I got into real estate was working with my father in high school. I used to see him working his butt off and I used to see the landlord come Collect the rent. Call, and he used to collect the rent. And literally the entire month's savings went to rent. Right. And when you see your, your, your parents have that type of pressure, especially when he raised the rent, as, as much as my father's business increased, the extra additional rent took all of that away. Mm. So I think at a young age, I said to myself, I really don't want to be that victim. I don't want to be victimized by a landlord. I think the idea of being a landlord was basically breaking through the the hurdles and the and the obstacles and the enemies that my father fought mm. all his life. I think that's what drove me actually 
to take that salesperson is what I saw my father go through. I see. I see. So you kind of took it upon yourself to to be the one to change the perspective from, you know, the tenant to the landlord and the person who's Whatever. working their life and the person who's Whatever. hiring. Yeah, people. I didn't want to feel the way my father felt. Got it. I wanted to I wanted to be independent. I wanted to give my my, my you know, everybody wants the best for their kids and for their grandkids. I'm really not working today for myself. I'm really working for my grandkids at this point. Mm. I think that's the, the community that I'm in. It's what drives us. You, you, you need an you need a universal you need a universal uh, call it element to drive you. And I think what drives me is that all my grandkids have a little easier time than I had. AB, can you tell us about any of the philanthropy work that you do nowadays? So I think giving back to others is probably my secret weapon for success. I'm a very God-fearing person, and I believe that uh, even a good idea that I get, I have to thank God for that idea. And I think that when, when somebody asks for help or somebody needs a lending hand, it could be advice, it could be, uh, it could be accompanying him to a meeting with his bank, it could just be a, a shoulder to lean on or, or a forum to be heard. I try to never turn that opportunity away. Um, many times I was in the middle of litigation or I was in the middle of a, a real estate dilemma. Mm. And I could tell you there had been days that I gave out charity. And by 5 p.m. that day, there was a breakthrough. Mm. Uh, the, the case got settled. The case was in my, the case was in my favor. I, I, I believe that the closest you can get to God is to by helping another person. Mm. And I would tell everybody that if you think you're busy, don't ever be busy enough to help somebody else because that is the key. That is the magic weapon. Mm, got it. And you teach at a high school. Can you tell us a little bit about um, sure. how important so, that is? So as I mentioned before, working at a high school and being thrown into a mix of adults who had kids and had a family of their own and had responsibility and you're thrown into these cubicles with, with literally people who if they don't make a deal that month, they're out of the real estate business. It was kind of earth shattering, it was very emotional, and it was very hard. I was very depressed during those early times of my career. And I like to give back to the younger generation. So I realized what's better, what a better way to give back. I basically offered my time and I teach one once a week, a real estate course Great. to uh, juniors and seniors at the high school. Very, it's very rewarding. I always wanted to do it. It was on my bucket list. I finally got around to do it. This is my second year. And uh, I'm so happy that I, I'm so happy that I'm doing it. Amazing. And so can you tell us what you're working on currently and what you're planning to do in the next decade? Sure. I mean, right now we're, uh, right now we're building, uh, we had a, uh, on, on the retail and building a very interesting Burlington. We, uh, we took a negative, Models went bankrupt. And during COVID, we had crunch in the warehouse portion of a building, we had models vacant. So we basically shopped the entire space to Burlington and we're building a 50,000 square foot uh, store right in the heart of Bushwick. Oh, wow. You know, very difficult construction job, escalators, elevators. I think it's gonna be fabulous. I think it's gonna be one of the best stores in the tri-state area. Amazing. And uh, we're building some residential projects. We're closing up now in Crown Heights, a 48-family building, um, building something on McDonald Avenue, which no one thought would happen um, with the help of city planning. Um, 
know, and then we have, you know, we have a lot of other things. Is there anything I haven't asked you that you'd like to share with the audience? Yeah, that's a lot of good questions. <laughs> Covered a lot, Johnny. I think, I, I think the only thing I could, if you asked me how to, what, what a person without money starting out, he sees real estate as something he cannot touch. He sees real estate as something he cannot buy. I think the answer is, is just get started. And don't worry about 10 or 20 years from now. And don't, you know, see yourself as someone who's going to own and develop, but just get started. Mm. Get started and kill the day. Win the day. Win the day, you'll end up winning the week. You'll end up winning the month. And surely you'll see yourself blossom Amazing. into that person that you want to be. Great. Amazing. And I have my final question to wrap this up. Um, if you had the ability to go back in time and talk to 24-year-old AB, a couple years in the business, what advice would you give him? Interesting. I, I don't know what advice I would give him because every mistake that that young AB made brought me a lot of other, you know, a lot of other positives. Got it. Every negative part of what I went through in my life come positives. Mm. I think that's something that everybody needs to know is not to... Put your hand in the sand if things don't go well. If don't go your well, you gotta you gotta hang in there. Keep pushing. You gotta keep pushing, keep fighting, keep getting to work with that confidence level. And uh, and I don't I don't I don't know what I would tell young Abby. I think I think what I would just basically say was maybe I could have been a little more chilled out in my younger okay. age. But again, <laughs> I was in this boxing match with myself, and there was nothing that was gonna stop me. I was right. I was obsessed, and. You know, if I could calm down a little bit back then, maybe I would have calmed down. Back. And you're still obsessed to this day. Yeah, I think I'm a little less obsessed okay. than I used to be, but may, who knows? <laughs> maybe. Again, I think obsession, and I think being neurotic, and I think being nervous are all great traits. Right. Because I think you need to always protect the downside in every deal that you do. Mm. And the upside will always take care of itself. Got it. Okay. A.B., thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate thank it. This has been amazing. Thank you. Same here, Johnny. Thank, thank you. you.